Hey everybody, welcome to CookPod, the podcast of champions. I'm Peter Barrett. This week I talked to Kathleen Finley, director of Glenwood, a not-for-profit agricultural think tank advocacy center. I've been following them for quite some time. They do terrific work, leveraging a modest staff and budget to create viable business models and organizational support for sustainable agriculture in the region in a wide variety of areas. Um, It gets a little wonky, but if you're really passionate about food, then I think it follows that you should pay attention to where it comes from, how it's grown, um, and even beyond that, the economic models that you're supporting by choosing to shop in one place versus another. It's easy enough to buy organic produce in most places, but there is a world of difference, for example, between the industrial organic that's grown in California and then trucked around the country versus, say, buying from a CSA or a farmer's market, which gives much more direct economic benefit to people in your community, keeps dollars in your community. Uh, It's a form of voting with your wallet that is, I think, especially in aggregate, at least as effective locally and regionally speaking as voting in voting booths in elections. In the 10 years that I've been covering this beat, as it were, uh, farmers remain among the smartest and certainly hardest working people that I've met. So my affection for Glenwood comes right out of the that same work ethic and spirit uh, and uh, the tangible impact that they're making on the, on the region in terms of helping more people get hold of the kind of food that we should all be able to buy and eat every day. So check them out at glenwood.org. I talked to her in her house on the Glenwood campus, which is a beautiful rolling 250-acre working farm. It was International Women's Day, a beautiful sunny late winter day. So here's me talking to Kathleen Finley at and about Glenwood. Yeah, you have a lot of acres here, right? Well, the property is 250 acres, but it's like 28,000 acres of state park. Right, right next door, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I walk to it, yeah. That's fantastic. So, um, yeah, it's like, it's beautiful. Totally, amazingly gorgeous and fabulous. Yeah, and you've now been here a while, right? Because we met way back in, what, 2010 or whenever, when I started, when did I profile you? Nine, ten? Yes, so I've been here... Almost seven years. Oh, okay. Okay, so it was a little after that. Because you had just come on as director when I came to profile Glenwood. And then shortly after that, maybe, I don't remember the chronology, but then I also did something about Cider Week, but that was mostly with Sarah. Right. Right. That wasn't But that was 2010, wasn't it? When Cider Week got started and the French people came over? That was before me. That was before you. Okay. All right. So that, I did that first. So that's how I got to know Glenwood. Right. And then I met you when you came and I wrote about this particular organization, right. not just Cider Week. Yes. All right. So Cider Week's really turned into a thing. Are we recording? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good. So the, the Cider Week thing, um, I mean, it really has become 
exactly like it's fully fledged now, right? And that was always the, that was the image that you used when we first talked was this idea that you were going to create these things that, that would then sort of take wing on their own and become self sustaining. Yeah, I think that opportunity um, that was there was just a handful of cider makers in the Hudson Valley, let alone New York State. And by working with them, we've been able to, they've been able to self-organize. So now there's a New York State Cider Association mm-hmm. and a lot of Cider Week that we started, you know, promoting and having this week in Hudson Valley and in New York City to help people get to know cider, hard yeah. cider. Um, now the State Association does that, which right. is its own entity that we work with really closely, but it's its own. Yeah. And you, you were involved thing. in the forming of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Which I remember, and there there were issues having to do with um, state and federal law, having to do with the the ABV caused different kinds of cider to be rated as you know like beer or wine or something else. Right. I mean, there was re- literally no regulation on the books for cider when we started working with cider makers, and so by convening the cider makers and hearing hearing first from them about the kind of regulation that would benefit a growing cider industry, I think we were able to communicate that to the state and get yeah. very favorable yeah. regulation. Yeah. But I, I'm not, I mean, one of the first cider weeks in the city, there was this big hubbub because we couldn't pull a license for a cider event tasting because there's no way to pull a license hmm. for a cider tasting. Because no one knew what to no do, for right? It. And so it was kind of like, well, somehow we need to be able to pour cider. And they they actually kind of wrote this last minute wow. sort of public tasting of cider, which then became one of the first sort of official ways that we started talking to the state about the need to regulate cider. Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of our governor, but I think he has been pretty good on the ag stuff. He's, he's great on the ag stuff. And, you know, Richard Ball is really, he comes from a farm family. I think he mm-hmm. really cares about farmers in New York State. Yeah. Um, he And I think both of them see the opportunity for economic development in terms Absolutely. of... And tax revenue. And yeah. So, tourism. You know, in tourism and in workforce development, um, you know, really, Glenwood, what a lot of what we do when we train farmers is it's really a trade school. Yeah. And so... Um, having fabulous farmers that care and steward the land and are able to succeed here in the valley is, you know, beneficial to the state. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so let's, let's jump from that then straight to the, to the incubator thing because that's now been up and running for a while. So I'm curious how that started to ripple outwards. Yeah, a few years. So that program is essentially, you know, we have an apprenticeship program here that's pretty mm-hmm. advanced. Yeah. So folks who, who may be new to farming generationally, they might be first-generation farmers, but but um, they probably have a year to three years under their belt farming. So they kind of know they want to be farmers. They come here, they live on site, they learn and hone their field and operational skills around farming. But then there's really very little support. And there's a couple of apprentice programs, you know, throughout the region. But then there's... um, it's hard to kind of piece together support once you launch your own farm. Yeah. So the incubator project is really aimed at those either pre-launch or in the first five years of running a farm-based business right. in and Hudson you, Valley. And so remind me then about, because land is obviously the most expensive commodity, remind me how you find sort of landlords for them or grants. And, and obviously you need some kind of a lease of, of, you know, some kind of like a decade or more. 
if you're going to put that kind of commitment into the land. Yeah, there's been some, in my tenure here, I think that land access, well, I don't want to underestimate the challenge of yeah. finding affordable land for right. a new farmer. Especially in this neighborhood. Right. Um, it's tough, but it's, it, there have been, there's been pretty significant um, reduction of barriers since I've been here. And mm-hmm. uh, part of it is a growing interest from landowners who own either land that was previously farmed and has been fallow of mm-hmm. wanting to get land back into production on land that mm-hmm. they own. And do they have a property tax like reduction situation? Yeah, for land, they can. Like the land use yeah, like yeah. they have in Vermont? Yeah, they can. And um, especially if it's in an ag district. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. They absolutely, um, and I think there's a truly an authentic um, desire for those landowners to get that land back into production and have it be used and have it to help support a new entry farmer on their way of, you know, in their early stages of uh, farm business entrepreneurship. Yeah. So we work with a lot of kind of private landowners and make matches with farmers mm-hmm. um, and do, you know, help them kind of think about how to mediate or how to, how to create a long-term lease or arrangement. At the same time, the land trust conservate, sort of land conservation movement in this part of the state has been, you know, has a really solid legacy and recently has embraced agricultural landscapes as part of their, um, you know, collective action. So they're, you know, helping farmers get land that has easements on it. Mm -hmm. In some cases, just conservation easements, but there's also now new deals happening where there's farm easements on it so that the land is, is passed down through generations to stay as ag land. Um, and those efforts make it more affordable for, for farmers to, to find land. Um, and they have a lot of resources, you know, in, in kind of, there's some investors now that are buying land, buying farmland and renting it at a really favorable, you know, lease to own kind of arrangement to new entry farmers as a sort of investment opportunity. Um, and there's, um, you know, just a lot of nonprofit and philanthropic resources yeah. to help make that happen. So AFT, and we're part of a FarmLink mm-hmm. um, effort that AFT houses where we help match those land opportunities with farmers looking for land. Right. So it's better. I right. mean, I think it's still really tough, but it just in the last five years, I think it's gotten easier for That's farmers. Good. So how many alumni them. do you now have out in the world? Working. From the incubator program? Sure. Or interns too, I mean. Right. I mean, the interns we have, let's see, um, I think we have over 50 apprentices who have gone through our program. Almost all of them are still in food and farming, many of them actively yeah. farming. Um, more women than men Good. in that program. Our incubator farms, It's a. It's. we actually started the incubator about three and a half years ago and we incubate for several years mm-hmm. so many of the folks that started are still with us right right now we have uh, a cohort of seven farms throughout the region some new farms just started in this winter that's great and um yeah we have a, a sort of decentralized model so they're basically all the farms have land right now so Mm -hmm. we're not finding land for those farmers and we're visiting those farms and helping them with their field operations and then they come to glenwood for group sort of 
learning, um, like we just had a climate resilient, two day climate resilient workshop. Mm-hmm. How are how are we best coping, mitigating and adapting for the climate reality? And does that include crop selection and things like that? Because it is changing kind of dramatically. Yeah, um, I didn't hear a lot of crop selection. It was a lot more talking about how we manage the soils um, to sequester carbon, Mm -hmm. what the different irrigation approaches are with the kind of volatility of uh, of rainfall that we're seeing. Um, How do we deal with that? What are the, what are, there's some farms in our area that are really monitoring some, um, some important metrics like, how how the water is moving through the property, what the releases are of carbon, what the sequestration rates are, yeah. what's in the soil, what makes up the soil, what are different, you know, a study we did, for example, is what are, um, what are forage crops for animals that can survive more intense summer temperatures. Right. So... Those are sort of the strategies. I didn't hear specifically on um, yeah, okay. crop selection. Because I know that, I mean... Sh- surely, yeah. But in my experience, and also what I've read, but my hands-on experience in my own garden, the more years of composting I do, the better the soil retains water, but it also drains away. It's sort of paradoxical, but it's the more organic matter, the fluffier and darker and more mm-hmm. microbially active your soil is. Yeah, it's it makes a dramatic difference. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, and the plants can also get their roots down deeper, so that they can reach things that they couldn't might not right. otherwise. Especially exactly. in the not great topsoil that we have around here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually um, I grew sesame this year mm-hmm. for the first time, which is super drought tolerant and really huh? pretty prolific. It was an experiment. I grew six plants, but I got wow. a good yield. That's so I'm great. Gonna, yeah, I'm gonna do more this year. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so fun. funny. There's sesame right out on the kitchen table okay. right now. Yeah. We love some local sesame. Um, yeah. So I want to, yeah. um, for a second, because uh, I have a question that kind of follows up on that, but I also, um, before we get too far, you have a pretty interesting you know, trajectory that got you here. So I'd love mm-hmm. to, because I know you're from some exciting place. I remember you I'm gave me a lecture on rum place. once at a bar. Oh, yeah. Late at night. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Bermudian. Yeah. Yeah. Born there? Rub. I wasn't born there. No, I grew up in California no, you did. Okay. to a Bermudian mother okay. who moved back there when I was 17. So my home sort of shifted as a teenager um, back to Bermuda where my family, she's, you know, many generation Bermudian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I lived there for a number of years and had my daughter. My daughter was born there. She's, okay. she, she's one up to me on the right. Bermudian front. Right. And she's grown she's now, born right? Bermudian. She's... Yeah, she's in her 20s. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And so you were there for a while and then you came, I forget, you went to, you ended up in Woods Hole at some point, right? No, in Bermuda, there's an oceanographic institution. Okay. So um, it's kind of like a Woods Hole-esque. Okay outpost and it's 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 been around for for a long long time and basically oceanographers can get to pretty deep water mm-hmm. because they're off the continental shelf so they right. can go so the the time depth series of measurements off Bermuda thanks to that research station it's like one of the longest running sort of time series in the globe and i studied uh, marine biology and writing as an undergrad. So when I and my mother was living in Bermuda, so I oriented and worked for a long time at that 
Um, wow. We called it the bio station. It has a new name since I left. Hmm. But those of us from my generation, we will always call it the bio station. Got it's it. called BIOS now. Okay. So I was there for uh, a while in a kind of in a communications capacity, mm-hmm. writing about sort of the, the important needs of ocean sciences. And we started an initiative there around ocean and human health. So uh, a group of physicians and public health folks were looking at how are changes in the ocean affecting the global diet? Right. And right. how... Acidification, right? Which is the thing that the climate deniers can't dispute so they don't talk about it. Yeah. I mean, there's many factors. I mean, even just, you know, we're now talking about oceanic heat waves yeah. that are having a significant impact on fisheries populations and fisheries migration. So there's lots of dynamics that are changing um, right now in our marine environments that have have true impact on on our health. I mean, seafood alone is a, sort of the, the most important animal-based protein on the planet yeah. globally. So, um, so those, those direct impacts, um, I think, for me as, a, as someone who is constantly striving to help people understand that our connection to the planets, ecosystems, and to nature are fundamental. The, the opportunity to talk about the ocean within the context of our health and livelihood was mm-hmm. really appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, people to pay attention to, because it's not like a National Geographic show. It directly yeah. pertains to what you're eating and shopping yeah. for. And- yeah, and, and having worked on ocean issues for so long, it's, it can be hard to help to, for people to relate, especially if you don't live near an ocean. Right. You know, I mean, if you're kind of near it, at least you see the beauty, but there, there's still a sort of mystery about what happens underneath, let alone what, how the oceans drive our life globally. Yeah. So health and food in particular was, were, it was interesting for me to try to make a case to a general public to care about our oceans because they take care of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that work about a, a kind of intersecting human health and one ecosystem sort of led me to a broader investigation of more global environmental change in human health. And mm-hmm. then I went, so I went from there to a center at Harvard Medical School that was founded by physicians, mm-hmm. really making that case that we're, we're, we depend on nature. Right. And uh, it was a group of very active physicians that wanted to make progress on environmental legislation and regulation and tried to make that argument from a human health point of view. Hmm. So I spent 14 years wow. sort of making that case yeah. out, of that, out of that center at Harvard on a range of, of issues, loss of biodiversity, global environmental change, um, and then became more and more entrenched in sort of the connections between food and health and the environment. Right. Were you writing? Were you, you were doing scholarship or outreach, communication, some combination of all the above? All of the above. We taught medical school students, um, which was really important because most medical school students get no environmental education, um, really yeah. very little nutrition and food yeah. um, education. So... Um, it was an important course, I think, for a medical school. Um, so we taught the course. We did a lot of outreach. We did a lot of writing. 
Um, we did some very public, I worked a lot with aquariums on mm-hmm. an ocean and human health initiative and produced a film for kids and okay. families. Um, with the New England Aquarium there in Boston. I worked with the New England Aquarium and they showed my film. The film was went into many aquariums mm-hmm. and schools um, just to help people on kind of that frame mm-hmm. of how much we depend on the ocean. And... And then did a couple of tangible things at Harvard. I started a, a very small um, edible garden okay. in Harvard Yard. It was a university-wide initiative. And, and then did something I'm starting to do a little bit more now, but is working with hospitals in the Boston area around how they procure food mm. and how they, how they kind of think about food and in their, in their institutions. Yeah. yeah. I know a lot of colleges have started doing that quite a while ago. I went to RISD and they, uh, Providence has a bunch of culinary schools already, but they, they really picked their game up and started trying to buy from local farms and, and really make, I mean, the food when I was there was just the very worst institutional food you can imagine. Right. But that was a long time ago. Um, they've definitely transformed that program. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a lot of other schools have followed suit, but hospitals, I'm sure prisons are at the very bottom of the barrel in that regard. But um, hospitals, you would think with vulnerable populations, people are trying to get better you would yeah. think that having more nutritious food that makes you feel good would be kind of a priority, but it yeah. doesn't. Until it's, recently, I guess it hasn't been. I think at all. it's starting, starting to get some more traction. But when I started working, I just you know never forget walking into Children's Hospital in Boston, maybe the best, you know, children's best hospital in the country serving that audience. And um, I went to go get something to eat, as you do, yeah. and uh, yeah, it was like French fries, chicken nuggets you know, frozen stuff, reheated. Yeah. And to me, it just seemed like selling cigarettes on a cancer ward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, where we have so many diet-related diseases. And so there's just there was just a disconnect between operations and the intent of an institution like a hospital to provide health. I think that's changing slowly. And, uh, you know, I'm happy when I see that, but long way to go. Yeah. And it's tough. You know, I mean, I spent years working with those hospitals, and I get it, you know, feeding a lot of people efficiently is not, is not easy. No, and those are businesses. As yeah. Anybody who spent even 10 minutes in a hospital, they remind you pretty much every, you know, yeah. chance they get. Yeah. But it's a so profit-driven the, business. So. Right, and, and the sheer volume is daunting. So, um, you know, we're, there's a couple hospitals locally that I think are, are doing an outstanding job. They're smaller, yeah. so it's easier um, in terms of procurement. But they're also doing things like uh, really taking advantage of some of the incentives for their patients, like writing vouchers that can serve as you know, prescriptions mm-hmm. that can be discounts or coupons at farmer's markets. Oh, that's great. Having farmer's markets and CSA pickups at hospitals, mm-hmm. which makes a lot of sense sure. to me. Having having edible gardens, having teaching kitchens. Yeah. Um, so that when your physician says, you know, you really should have you know, low sodium diet or eat more plants and vegetables and they're not, that's not their, you know, you can, you can learn how to cook You can that learn way. how to, yeah, that's great. yeah, and have fun. And, and, that would be right. great in like retirement communities as well or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, so uh, yeah, that's, and then the opportunity to come here was, was more for me to move 
uh, more into intervention than in, in academic. So mm-hmm. um, trying to implement projects like the CIDR project or others that yeah, actually yeah. are the kind of building blocks of a regional food system. Yeah, I think I first, Glenwood first popped up on my radar back when you were doing, which I think was also before your time, was with, with the mobile slaughterhouse idea, which I absolutely loved, but it just proved to be just too cumbersome because it's it's a crazy overregulated in some ways, um, sector of the business, but also um, it's a huge bottleneck for the kind of farmers that you and I love and want to support because they don't produce the volume that they, they, they sometimes have to really scramble to get space when they need to harvest. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a giant obstacle that all of them complain about all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, did you read or ever hear about the guy up in Vermont who built his own facility on mm-hmm. his farm? He went on Kickstarter and he raised enough money to get a foundation poured and some, and he built a proper USDA slaughterhouse on his farm. Yeah. That has an, has a, you know, the little office yeah. and the shower for the inspector and yeah. all the things you need. Yeah. And so beyond lowering his own costs and being able to slaughter on his own schedule, he can also um, make and hang charcuterie on site. And he can also then rent time and space out to his neighbors so that they can come and do their thing and they don't have to stress their animals by taking them a really long way, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a really, I mean, I I was super excited about it. Um, And so I think that's when I first started, you know, following what you guys are up to. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think that I hear that that's happening more. We just had a, another workshop we had was a a sort of um, meat intensive, um, and we were we had processors there that are kind of some of the most progressive processors in the area, mm-hmm. working with the farmers and really dialoguing around how can we how can we work together to be you know less less bottlenecky. Right. And Ruby from Raven and Boar, mm-hmm. they're building a, a facility on their site. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I just hear that more, you know. Charcuterie, jacuterie, I think yeah. they're building us. Yeah, they and I know a couple of cheesemakers were really, I don't know if it went anywhere, but they were talking about trying to raise some money like Jeff to do what Jasper Hill has, which is be able to age other people's product right. on site because it's a, another huge obstacle because people end up, and if you're making certain kinds of cheese, you have to sit on your own inventory for a year. Yeah. And and so it just gets in the way of everything and, and you're not making any money off of it. And so it's hard. Yeah. Um, so that, that brings me to what I wanted to ask before I, I remembered to get a little biography in this, uh, which is the ways in which you're teaching and helping farmers to produce and sell the value-added products like charcuterie, like fermented you know, cabbage, kimchi, whatever. Um, because obviously a head of cabbage is not worth a whole lot, but a jar of kimchi is worth an awful mm-hmm. lot at a farmer's market. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested um, in that angle because um, it really honestly, for the most part, makes the difference between being able to pay the bills and not in, mm-hmm. in many cases. Yeah, and really, you know, our role is first as a convener and um essentially the the kind of trajectory that we followed with cider is is really an example that we can replicate over and over responding to the desire of those producers um so you know for example it would be great if we brought if we started a cheese guild in the Hudson Valley mm-hmm. because that's where 
um, you know, folks can get together and work out what are the needs, what's the shared infrastructure, what are the trainings that we need, yeah. what's the marketing that we need. And that's where we can help kind of listen to the producers and then try and figure out resources right. that can collectively move them along. Um, so we've done that with obviously cider. We've done that with CSA farmers in mm-hmm. the last couple of years. In terms of other value-added products, charcuterie, we've done a little bit, and yeah. meat in general, mm-hmm. just like we did the last couple, you know, this, a few weeks ago, having um, you know the significant meat producers in the valley figure out what what are the problems, what are what, where can we go? Yeah. Well, and I remember when I was here. For the article, you um, you were really working hard on um, kind of evangelizing the, the many glories of goats. Yeah. Because they're so efficient. Because yeah. they can graze on, on shitty land that other animals won't really handle. Yeah. Um, and they can turn marginal land into pasture in just a couple of years. Yeah. So I was, you know, and they're delicious too. Right. So they're actually less gamey than lamb. Which That's people, right. Think of goats somehow as being smellier, but they're not. No, I find we did a blind just at a dinner party. We served lamb and goat, and um, didn't tell people. And people prefer goat when they're present. In my experience, Mm -hmm. people often prefer goat. But if you tell them beforehand, then it's like game over for many people. Unless they're Jamaican, right? (laughs) Um, So yeah, we haven't. We we goats are great, and they're such an asset on any pasture based operation because they do keep the invasives at bay yeah. and you get a return on yeah. that investment. And they eat ivy. How can you yeah, not love them? Exactly. Um, we have a ways to go to get people to embrace well, so, goats. It's been a, yeah, it's been a few years though. Are you are you finding some improvement there like in a, terms of the marketing? But... A little, a little more awareness. I think we rely on our chef friends to introduce goat on menus and then that helps people ask for goat but we i mean we sell out of goat every year in and year out it's a small you know scale production we have here but um people are sort of getting more and more familiar with it and we haven't but we haven't done a like big campaign that we had once imagined uh, of like really pushing there's no american goat council i mean there's you know there's been like goat tober is a Mm -hmm. thing um yeah so uh there are some national efforts to to like help americans uh get more psyched about eating goat Mm -hmm. um and so we usually our farm dinner in october Uh is centered around goat you need Um, some kind of celebrity to take the mantle and run yeah yeah um yeah, one of the one of the sort of scruffier, you know, edgier food media personalities needs to be your new Yeah, our new goat person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be very farmers would be very happy. And just meat in general, there's so much to do. You know, I I think one of the one of the areas of frustration that I've um I've noticed over the years is a is a really black and white interpretation of meat Mm -hmm. like meat is good or meat is bad um and very little understanding of kind of the nuances of meat and the difference between pasture raised meat or and confusion around what is natural chicken listen i live in woodstock right we have our share more than our share of vegans i would say Mm -hmm. and i was a vegetarian for a long time when i was younger in college and after and it really pisses me off when I meet somebody who doesn't eat meat and 
they learn that I do food-related things, and and I get lectures, you know, about how, like you said, that it's an absolutist sort of thing, and and it's a source of constant frustration to me because I, as somebody who tries really hard to only eat meat from farms in my area that raise animals the way I want them to be raised, that we should have, like I and any kind of conscious vegan should agree on about 95% Mm -hmm. of the subject um, that factory farming is an abomination, Mm -hmm. right? It is not good for anybody. And yet there is almost no common ground to be found in my experience, Mm -hmm. in conversation with people who have really strong opinions in that regard. Yeah. They just can't see it. To them, yeah. all animals are all animals. And if you eat one of them, you're leaving aside all the other lower, you know, invertebrates that get sucked up by giant machines to make your tofu dogs <laughs> and how far those get trucked and how processed they are, you right. know, how carbon intensive and, and unbelievably bad for the planet all that processed fake meat is, you know? Yeah. So. It's, yeah. Lots of juicy debate there. But Yeah. And fair enough. People don't want to eat animals. That's I like, have no problem with that. Yeah. It's the it's the it's the, the self righteousness that precludes right. actually finding right. finding an area that we could all agree to work on. Right, right, and um, and right, and really understanding, you know, the 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 kind of meat we raise here, the difference between that and what happens in those CAFOs mm-hmm. that ends up on the grocery store shelf is yeah. asked. Vast difference. It's a, it's a different food. Yeah. It's completely different. Even down to, and this goes back to all your, 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 what you were talking about in terms of the ocean and, and human health, the, the lipid profile in pasture-raised meat is completely different. Mm-hmm. The ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 is, is inverse, mm-hmm. so it's much, much healthier for you. Yeah, for if, sure. Yeah, absolutely. You, what a concept if you let animals eat what they would goat eat. Goat is really healthy, actually. Mm-hmm. Back to goat. Back to, back goat. to me Always p- back to pushing goat. goat. Mm-hmm. Sure Goats are really high omega-3. Yeah. Fabulous, not very fatty. Yeah. Yeah, and they're also really efficient. I mean, I was, I have to, it's funny, I just a week ago had a steak from Glenwood. Mm-hmm. A, friend, a friend of mine's place just down the road. Um, and it was lovely. But in general, I have been trying, and I've been, you know, talking it up um, when I can, I've been trying to eat smaller quadrupeds. Uh-huh. That's um, right. Because I don't think, you know, cows are pretty inefficient, and where we live is not great cow country. Yeah. And so I've been trying to do pretty much pigs, lamb, and goat because I think we raise those best around here. They raise faster and they use a lot less while they grow. That's, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And actually poultry is pretty, you know, if I had to rate my sustainability index, Mm -hmm. even pasture-raised poultry, I mean, you know, there's grain involved. They don't give that much back to the land, whereas ruminants... They're just like moving they don't fertilizer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, when you do rotational with ruminants and then chickens, obviously you, you get. Yeah. A, yes, you can do it in a way that, that you get more. But in terms of if you're a conscious eater, yeah. um, I, I think people think poultry is like less harmful to the landscape right. or more, more uh, you know, a higher conscious choice. But actually, Needs more inputs, way more inputs way than more. a small ruminant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so that's yeah. that's kind of where I've been. Go um, back to goat. Back to goats, man. <laughs> no, they really are. Like it, it's. I'm happy to provide yeah. you the platform to evangelize for goats because it's. Um, I love it. Um, I wish I could get more of it. I mean, I can get it. Um, to me, 
it's uh, because it is so noticeably less gamey, and, and you know, most people love lamb, I think, and and goat is even sweeter and. I find less the people who fatty. don't like lamb like goat because yeah. people. There's a lot of people who don't like lamb. Yeah, yeah, people do. It's like get they, it's off like by, it's too much. Too animally. Yeah. I get that. Um, I like, love those. Yeah, and goat is, I think, a little more mild. Yeah, and it's less fatty too. Yeah. So you know, it's leaner, and so you get more meat that looks just deep red with no, yeah. you know tough parts that you have to trim off or whatever. Um, So is that, um, beyond what you're raising here and selling out, um, are you, and beyond, like I said, you know, Caribbean populations or or South Asian populations, people who just grew up eating it and and love it, and and it does take to curry very well. um, Do you, do you have any, I don't know, any plans for like ways that you're going to push forward with it? I mean, I don't, we don't actually. I mean, not because we don't think it's important. It's just sort of not where our priority is right now organizationally. Um, Aside from just what we're doing day in and day out about Mm -hmm. talking about the benefits of goat on our farm and uh, helping people understand how good it tastes by having farm dinners and things like that. We don't have a goat project right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it would seem, I mean, and again, I'm not, I, I am not a farmer, but as in dairy cows, you end up with a lot of males. If you're making yeah. goat cheese, you end up with a lot of males that don't have a lot to do, right? You really only need one on the farm yeah. at any given time. So it would seem to me that the goat cheese industry, such as it is, and we have some fantastic goat cheese makers around here. Um, that they're, I don't know, and people like goat cheese. Like, yeah, and that's the origin the of the Goat-tober mm-hmm. is really male, male goats mm-hmm. um, kind of having another enterprise around meat goats yeah. for calling. Yeah, that's I'm, I'm curious the one, started. maybe, I don't know, maybe it's because of, I don't know, maybe it just comes from Europe where there's a long tradition of goat cheese, but you don't think in terms of like French or Italian goat dishes as much. Like yeah. there's some stigma to the meat that is not there for the cheese. Right. People will go to the cheese shop and pay top dollar for fancy goat cheese. But they right. would probably turn up their nose at the goat meat in the counter right. next door. Right. It is interesting. I mean, also, we raise different breeds. I mean, in all, in sheep and in cow, mm-hmm. you raise different breeds for meat and for dairy. Um, like, I mean, I think they're consumed, but mm-hmm. you're not... You're getting an Angus steak. You're not right, getting a right. Jersey true. steak. Right. So there's, you know, there's a lot of inefficiency in the system, basically. Yeah. And how fickle our kind of cultural taste, collective cultural tastes are. Yeah. Right? So, um, and, and where, how much room there is to I, it, play with it, that. It's endlessly surprising to me that a, a nation as rapacious as we are is as finicky as we are. Yeah, right. We right. sort of seem to want everything and as much of it as there is, except that half the stuff, I'm like, ew, gross, I don't want that. Right, right. And um, that if you can, like, process it and put it in a pretty box, lots of packaging, it's yeah. okay. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right, so, so the priorities now, um, you've got the, the farmer, um, the apprentice, and the incubator. You've got the CSA. And Cider Week is now its own sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I imagine you still have some connection to it, but that's kind of up and running now. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we, you know, our work is sort of in, we have farmer training, and then we have these coalitions that we build. Cider would be one of them. Mm -hmm. The CSA farmers in the region would be another example. We have a coalition of seed growers. Right. And and chefs and farmers. The Hanks Baking Bean with with the seed library. Hanks Extra Special. Extra Special Baking Bean. Baking Bean, yes. yeah, so that really, uh, that work is about identifying from seed crops that grow really well in our region mm-hmm. and highlighting them on the plates in our restaurants. So um, it's a kind of an involved project where those seeds are trialed for their kind of growability by both by both the seed grower um, at the seed at Hudson Valley Seed Library or seed company now, mm-hmm. and then tested in, on our farms yeah. and reported back. How was it? Was it hard to grow Hanks? Is it easy? Mm-hmm. Um, and then our chefs do the tasting trials. So it's got to kind of hit all three. You have to be able to grow the seed. You have to be able to grow the crop. Yeah. With and like easily. Yeah. And with lots of success, and then it has to taste good. Right. And so that work has resulted in a couple of varieties that we've highlighted. And then, uh, and now we're really putting a lens on seeds and crops that we think have climate resilience mm-hmm. um, that might survive in more extreme weather profiles. And then we are also looking at uh, varieties that have a broader cultural resonance in our hmm. area. So we're looking at Callaloo right now. Mm. And I think that's it for, for right now that we're mm. in trial with. Um, yeah, I just saw Ken Green from the seed Emirates. company yeah. the, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I yeah. Gave, I gave him some bean seeds, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love what they're doing. Um, and I love how he's growing it and, and kind of making friends all over the world. It's really exciting. He's gone, going back to Asia. It's It's... Yeah. Just really taking off. Yeah. Seeds are, again, it's kind of like, it's not that different than what I was talking about. Like the whole story, we've been talking about food for, I think there's growing awareness around issues of sustainability and agriculture and human health with food. But often people start that thought process at crop level, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's Well, it's easier to it. understand. I mean, because commodity crops, I mean, everyone, you know, the, the whole... Um, amber waves of grain thing that's kind of baked into our national identity Um, but it's I think one of the the good things about that is that it's easy for people to understand that say I don't know a poison company like Monsanto might not be the best choice to entrust our seed supply to yeah all sorts of reasons. Since, since yeah. they are in the, they're in the neurotoxin business. Yeah, that's right. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, sovereignty, you know, I think is a, is a theme through all of our work. What does it mean to have a regional food system? It absolutely acknowledges some sovereignty over our region, over yeah. our place, over our identity. Mm-hmm. How do we want to grow food in our place? How do we want to eat in our place? You yeah. know, and, and having control of that by our our people instead of well, these of large the most, international companies. Yeah, one of the most fundamental expressions of autonomy and independence, absolutely. Yeah. I, was, I was looking at the Row 7 site um, the other day for research and also because I'm going to order some. 
and they specifically say like unpatented, like right, right. at the top, you know, yeah. of the description of what it is that they do. Right. It's beautiful. Like nobody it's owns great. the intellectual yeah. property. These yeah. are yours to, you can propagate them and yeah. breed them, continue breeding yeah. them and do what you want. Yeah. Bring and so that open comments. source nature is really, I think it's fundamental. Um, have you talked to them at all about it? Are these efforts yeah, overlap? Yeah, we're in, in talk about um, the, what we're doing with Kitchen Cultivars. So they're doing great work as well. So we, we share that. They're part of our group of peers who are all trying to help this help this um, more healthy food system get going. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's exciting. Um, all right, so did... I forget when you talked about the idea of putting together a kind of cheese consortium. Has that actually is movement been no. taken? No, Mm-mm. just an idea at this just stage. Just an idea. Um, yeah, there's no uh, no shortage of ideas, um, and but that and that coalition building. Yeah, kind of which coalitions we want to um, put energy and resources into. Because you, you have a small dynamic. staff, right? I forget what your annual yeah. budget is here, but you, you, you're not a lot of people. With... We're not a lot of people. We're really tight. And, um, you know, one of the things that the sort of third area of our work, so there's a sort of farmer training and this coalition building, is bringing people here to Glenwood to in- educate and inspire them. Mm. So these might be folks, whether they're food and farming professionals or other professionals or you know, all different kinds of folks, but coming here, taking a deep dive on one area of a regional food issue Mm -hmm. and then taking that out into their world. Right. So that we can do that because of our facilities. So we have this incredible, um, property that has places for people to stay overnight, to convene, to cook, to do demos and, um, making that property this it's a it's an old property and so keeping that um going as a facility to serve that educational function is takes a lot of our resources so um, it's a a big physical plant it's a big physical plant and um and and we're getting really good at bringing people here for those kinds of experiences and broadening Mm -hmm. our audience so because um, in season you have the monthly farm dinners, you have classes, you have your CSA people who come regular, they come weekly to pick things up. Yeah, exactly. And now we're doing sort of two and three day learning intensives for um, professionals such as we're bringing a group of physicians here to learn how they can, in their in their work, move the regional food agenda forward. Mm. We are bringing groups of policymakers together, food writers, exploring some residencies here on site. Oh, so, um, really thinking about how to use this place as a as a school, basically, yeah, uh, as a hub of learning. I mean, we've been doing that well, I think, for food and farming professionals, both kind of class based right. stuff, but also hands on demos and and field techniques, but. Um, helping other other influencers understand the importance of a regional food system is sort of something we're turning the volume up here yeah yeah so so when we when we first met i was much more engaged sort of as a journalist in in the regional food scene and i i pretty much everybody i talked to the eventual eventually the conversation would come around to the fact that the that things are just so colossally unworkable at a national level uh, because everything's been written for giant companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm curious, 
And, and, and what I, one of the things that I really loved about what you were doing then and, and have continued to do is the way that you are, by keeping everything really local, managing to avoid a lot of that and staying mm-hmm. sort of below the radar of any of these, you know, you're, you're playing in a different league as it were, but one that's much more directly connected to the mission statement, mm-hmm. obviously, but also things are kind of more workable locally and people have a sense of equity in their community and people can see what happens when they keep their dollars in a community by mm-hmm. shopping at this farmer's market or, um, and so I'm, I'm interested and I know that when we spoke um, you know, you, you like everyone else, had a lot of frustrations about the national level. And I, I wish I could say it's gotten better, but it's gotten much, much worse. So uh, I'm curious about ways in which you are, you know, strategizing to maneuver within the kind of con- the confines of, mm-hmm. this, of this regional space that you are, you know, yeah. that you find yourself in. Yeah, I mean, our premise is that regional is the appropriate scale for healthy agriculture. Mm -hmm. So the type of farming that we do and train here is going to be different than what you're going to do in, in upstate Washington or in New Mexico or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, holistically our view is that, um, that sustainable agriculture to be sustainable to be regenerative has to be tailored to a region Mm -hmm. and then that kind of um, demands that we have supporters of that kind of regional food system from customers to media to policy kind of everyone buying on so um, that's sort of our starting premise, that regional is the appropriate scale of agriculture, period. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing, how I look at what we're doing here and how it plays broader nationally and internationally is working closely with other regions who are trying to also create a really robust regional food system. Mm-hmm. Um, who who sticks out in your mind as being a good example? Of that? I mean, Vermont, mm-hmm. Maine, um, are I think are two areas that have done a fabulous job and have gotten a lot of state support. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, New York, as we were talking earlier, there's there's some support there on the state level, but mm-hmm. um, how that translates into dollars for the type of farming that we're doing, it could be could be more. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I get jealous of of that. And then there's you know, there's smaller regions in Washington State is a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, what what Tacoma. what would you say to somebody say from I don't know Arizona or New Mexico? Because here we're lucky we have a very a landscape that's conducive to very diversified agriculture. And what would you say if somebody came from a like a pretty arid desert situation or even a subtropical place like where you grew up, you know, where, yeah. which is small and has sandy soil and not a ton of land for farming? Right. I mean, that's just it. Right. So I could no more tell New Mexico, a New Mexico farmer how to farm than they could tell one of our farmers how to farm. Right. right. So. So it's about that tailored information and knowledge. And, and there's tons of knowledge in New Mexico. I mean, incredible agriculture has come out yeah. of that area. Um, but it's about addressing those needs that are in that region. Right. In Bermuda, there's, um, you know, just volunteering for an effort to highlight and grow as an increase the, um, the amount of Bermuda produced food. Um, and it's almost the te- the innovations have to be really what we would call urban growing in- innovations. You know, some indoor growing hydroponics, because it's a tiny island with very few arable acres. Right. Um, 
you know, completely different. And, and yet you have like awesome temperature year round, pretty even. Sure. Um, so that's a good thing. Well, so and you, and you, you have know, deep water fishing and shallow water. Right. So you have that kind yeah, of Yeah. So there's, I mean, yeah. that's, that's exactly the case. Like you really, the, the right farming is not one size fits all. It's what, what is, what works in those regions and that it, the best knowledge is there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's about shepherding that knowledge and, um, bringing those folks together. And again, I think our success is, is really it, what we do is is bring folks together to work collectively and and work with their peers about identifying the challenges and the opportunities and then pulling the resources to then to then make that progress. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a network nationally of not for profits like Glenwood sort of farm think tanks? At the yeah, moment? there's there's networks on different parts of what we do. So mm-hmm. there's certainly a strong farmer training network nationally. We just started a Hudson Valley farmer training collective. Mm-hmm. So we're working with all the other organizations who are training farmers mm-hmm. in the Hudson Valley, yeah. and you'll see more coordination amongst us um really really excited about that um because it just makes sense for us to be working together um and then there's kind of loose kind of looser kind of communication and collaboration that happens there's only a handful i mean it's not that many um of us who are really you know raising philanthropic dollars and putting it to work for a, a regional food system. And all of us have a, a, a little bit of a different take on it. Sure. But, yeah, we know each other. We work together. We share best practices, what's mm-hmm. working, what's not working. That's great. Yeah. So how... They're almost all led by women, which yeah, is good. great. No, that's... <laughs> it's, uh, I, I, you know, my... Uh, my mom was absolutely my, you know, principal role model, and her mom was kind of a badass too. So I have uh, just in my own life experience. And I you're think, a fan of women. I am, <laughs> and it's, no, but specifically women in positions of, you know, managerial and positions of power, control, decision making. Um, you know, like I said, my life as I've lived it has been better run by women than by men. Mm-hmm. Um, from childhood to con- my household right now. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's, uh, I was talking to somebody recently about how the, you know, the new leaving shit show that is national yeah. politics out of the thing. But um, well, the new, the new, the incoming, the new class of right. Congress, you know, it's really exciting. I just was in D.C. I just got back last night and... Was there Happy International Women's Day? Oh yes, by right. the way. so it's perfect. It's a perfect um, occasion to talk to you. Uh, I was there for. On that note, the I'm an ambassador of something called Sisters on the Planet, which is an, a group of ambassadors for Oxfam, mm-hmm. and in the past they've it, they continue to deal with global issues around food and farming, which are mostly women led efforts around the world. But what was so inspiring about this group is the number of women who have won offices that, mm-hmm. that I spent the, a couple of days with in DC you know everything from mayors to lieutenant governors to city council um, just an incredible powerful group of you know pretty young yeah. um, diverse yeah, it's super exciting energetic you know 
just strong women. So that was that was a nice shot in the arm. And, yeah, I bet. Uh, in this, and in light of everything that's happened under this administration. Oh god, yeah. No, this this like grassroots, you know, ground up things like you're doing here and like you're talking about. It's 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 the way you know through is the way forward. And that's right. We have to get through it. Yeah. And, and this, I think, is is the way. To do it at starting you know locally regionally statewide mm-hmm. and and you know eventually one hopes toppling this just obscene it, it would be cartoonish if it wasn't real yeah it it is quite extraordinary it's um, a little crazy so i'm curious like um you know, I know that just like there's bread baking in the other room, which you may not have been responsible for. But... I do. I know I have a hand in making dinner yeah. for a guest that's coming over. So, yeah. Um, so, but that's what I'm curious to ask you, just because um, as a home cook, I'm always keen to talk to other home cooks, even though that's, you know, we're here because of the work you do. But I'm curious how living on a farm has kind of changed your, you know, your practices, your oh cooking my practice. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, I'm extraordinarily privileged in terms of um, the access of food that I enjoy, but I really would be hard-pressed to tell you the last time I stepped into a grocery store. Yeah. I'd have to really think about that. That's a privilege, all right. Yeah. I hate food shopping. Um, But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think... Even before coming here, I, you know, I had a CSA and I Mm -hmm. had a year-round CSA and had like a bean CSA and a dairy CSA. But, you know, so uh, I continue to eat really seasonally. Um, But there is something about witnessing, I would say for the honor is witnessing the love and stewardship that goes into the food that's produced here on our farm that I enjoy. And then the celebration of that expression, sharing that back with the farmers is like heaven. It's just beautiful. So that is, uh, you know, the food dictates our lives. Yeah. And it creates community. So when you have like a dinner in that beautiful boathouse, for example, Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, we have a farm dinner tomorrow night and 40 of our of our community members will come and have some be treated to some Basque food by Alex Raj. Fantastic. Not Um, not in the boathouse, probably. right? Not in the boathouse. (laughs) A little chilly. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, there's that. And then, yeah, for, for me every day, it's, you know, I I get to taste my landscape. Mm. a few times a day so that's like I mean that's pretty awesome yeah. and that's available I mean that is the that's the beautiful soft part it's not soft it's like really deep but the beautiful part of a regional food system is that ability to really taste your landscape and, and know it in, in that sense beyond visual beyond sort of the aesthetics of this incredible place but what does it taste like and yeah. that's really and it's nourishing you it's yeah. keeping you alive yeah yeah there right. is that that's great well thanks <laughs> for talking to me thanks for talking to me it was fun it was good yeah thanks Peter excellent it's my pleasure great. Kathleen Finley glenwood.org for information about all the work they do and uh ways in which you could help out if you're moved to do so you can find me at cookpod.net cookblog on instagram theme music by my son milo barrett smilob.com
a number of people, farm to table to toilet. 